0: So I've got a question for you. Do you want to know what's going to happen in the future? Now, I know I do. As human beings, we've always been insatiably curious about the future. And people have gone to great lengths to try and figure out the future. Many people have gone to services like psychics to try and figure out the future. Or on the more formal sense, we have a whole group or class of business analysts who spend time trying to read the trends trying to read the finance trend, the technology trend, the housing trend, to try and predict the future. Because we're insatiably curious and anxious about the future, we want to know how things are going to turn out. Now, on top of that insatiable curiosity, we added COVID. And I think COVID has created more interest, more concern about the future than I've witnessed at any other time in my lifetime. And for some, the unknown and unstable sense of future has affected their mental health, as we've, as is evidenced in the increased anxiety uh, related to the future. Now, I've heard all kinds of predictions about the future, especially co- concerning COVID. I've heard predictions about what will happen if we take the vaccine, predictions of what will happen if we don't take the vaccine, predictions of what will happen to the economy, to the way we work, to the way we travel, to our religious freedoms, to the church in Canada— all kinds of predictions. What's my point? My point is we all want to know the future. We have always wanted to know the future and the implications for our lives going forward. We wonder about it. We worry about it. We speculate about it. We plan for it. We have hopes for it. But none of us have any control over the future. And that's what creates anxiety. That's what creates concern. That's what creates fear for many of us. But we can face the future with confidence, with hope, and with joy. And that's what I want you to know today. That you can face the future with confidence, with hope, and with joy. And hopefully by the time this message is done, you will see why this is true. See, today is an important day in the Christian calendar. Today we are celebrating the intersection between the past, the present, and the future that God has for us. Today is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is a day when Jesus fulfilled the past with his actions that pointed to a future reality that gives us the confidence to live with hope in the midst of the unknown. Did you get that? Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus fulfilled the past with actions that pointed to a future reality that give us the confidence to live with hope in the midst of the unknown. Now, to understand that statement, we need to take a quick historical tour of a ministry of the prophet by the name of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah lived at a time in the history of Israel that was filled with prophetic significance. The Jews had been in exile since they'd been taken into captivity by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, they were allowed to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild and restore their nation. However, they had seen many obstacles in their attempts to rebuild. And the people were very discouraged. And it is into this discouragement that Zechariah comes to the people of Israel with words words of counsel and words of encouragement. Listen to what he says in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey i will cut off the chariot from ephraim and the war horse from jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations he shall and his rule shall be from sea to sea from the river to the ends of the earth now often these verses are quoted as a footnote in sermons focused on Jesus' triumphal entry Uh, described in Matthew chapter 21. But today we're actually going to stick with these two verses in Zechariah and unpack them to get a better picture of the significance of Jesus' fulfillment of these prophetic words. Now, in case you're not familiar with the concept of prophecy, a prophetic word is a word from God that gives specific insight or direction or reveals truth or is a prediction about something in the future. And God does this in many ways. Sometimes it's through his word. Sometimes it's through dreams. Sometimes it's through impressions. Sometimes it's an audible voice that his prophets have experienced. And this is one of those prophetic words. So the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, is sandwiched between two other prophetic texts. And these texts are are texts about battle scenes relating to the nation of Israel. And to understand what Jesus, uh, what's said about Jesus in verses 9 and 10, we need to look at those texts that come before and after our text for today. Commentator uh, James Boyce uh, notes notes that Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 to 8 accurately foretells the conquest of the eastern Mediterranean coastlands uh, by the Greek armies of Alexander the Great, culminating in the defeat of King Darius in the Battle of, of Isis in 333 B.C., after conquering uh, the cities under Darius' rule, uh, Alexander then turned his attention to Jerusalem and was going to attack Jerusalem. Now, according to the ancient historian Josephus, uh, he said that when the high priest in Jerusalem heard that Alexander was on his way, he called the people of Jerusalem to fast and to pray and to offer sacrifices to God for protection and deliverance from Alexander. Now, God gave a dream to the high priest and the high priest was to take his priests and they were supposed to put on their priestly robes and go out uh, to meet Alexander outside of the city. And so they did that. They opened the gates, they got all dressed up in their priestly garments, and they went out to meet Alexander. When Alexander saw this entourage, the priests coming forward to meet him, he bowed down to the priest And then he he went in to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. Now, Alexander's men were astonished. Why would this great general, this pagan general, who had no belief in God, why would he actually do this? Why would he bow down to this priest? So they asked him about it. Alexander said that while he was in Macedonia, he had a dream and he had seen this priest dressed in with these garments in his dream. And in the dream, that priest had told Alexander that he would conquer the Persians. And so because of that, he said, that man is standing in front of me. And he submitted himself to the authority of the priest and spared Jerusalem from being conquered, fulfilling what Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 8, the first half of that verse. Now, the second prophecy that was fulfilled is in verses 11 to 17 of Zechariah 9. And those verses refer to the Jewish conquest of the Greeks, which was fulfilled in the Maccabean revolt that took place around between B.C. 170 to 150. And so we have these two battle texts, these two texts that talk about what would happen in the battles and the threats that the people of Israel, in particular the people of Jerusalem, would face. And in the middle of that, we have this declaration of a king, of a very different kind of king and a radically different kind of kingdom. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, begins with the line, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Now a daughter is a description uh, of the people in in a place, of that population personified as a female. Why rejoice? Why is this such good news? Israel had seen many kings come and go. After Saul, David, and Solomon, the kingdom had been split into two kingdoms, northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom being Israel, the southern kingdom being Judah. Now, the northern kingdom saw many evil kings. The southern kingdom had a few good kings, but also had many evil kings. Life was very difficult for both. So why rejoice about another king? Was it just another person coming, just another ruler? But Zechariah says that this king will be different from all other kings that they've ever had. And the second half of verse 9 says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah is saying there's three ways that this king will be different. He'll be righteous, he will bring salvation, and third, he's going to be humble. The coming king will be the king of righteousness. Now, what does it mean for a king to be righteous? The the word used here for righteous is a Hebrew word that means just and lawful. And it is given here as a description or a statement of fact. It's not a relative statement. In other words, he's not going to be righteous relative to other kings. Now, often we compare leaders and we say this one is good compared to the last one. It doesn't mean they're actually good. It just means they're comparatively good. Is that what Zechariah is saying? That this king will be righteous compared to the other kings that Israel had had in the north and in the south? No, Zechariah is saying that this king will be the definition of righteousness. That this king will be the standard of righteousness. Paul refers to this when he's writing to the church in the city of Rome. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. So in other words, Zechariah the prophet is testifying to the righteous king, to the righteousness that the apostle Paul is talking about. And Paul goes on to talk about it uh, in verse 22 of Romans chapter 3. And he says, "The righteous, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in other words, Jesus Christ is the righteous one. And he's the righteous one that Zechariah is pointing to. The coming king will be Jesus. That is what Ze- Zechariah is talking about. And he will set the standard of justice, the standard of fairness. He will he will he's the one who will rule in justice. He will judge in justice because he is the king of righteousness. Secondly, Zechariah talks about the king of salvation. Now, when the people of Israel thought of salvation, they would have always thought of salvation from people like Alexander or about the Maccabean revolt. Or in in Jesus' day, they would have thought of salvation from Roman rule. They were always thinking of salvation as freedom from the oppression of some ruling uh, country or some other ruler who had come to oppress them. Uh, because that had happened so many times before. And Zechariah is promising and prophesying about this coming king in the midst of these battle texts, as I mentioned. But that pronouncement, that freedom, that salvation is far too small for what Zechariah intends in verses 9 and 10 of, his, of chapter 9 of his book. He was prophesying of the freedom of God's original plan, of the freedom of people to be free from their sin, No more bondage. No more spiritual slavery. The freedom that God had intended all along. That will be what the king of salvation brings. Real, true salvation. Now you may wonder, what is salvation? It's interesting. Merriam-Webster defines uh, salvation as the deliverance from the power and effects of sin. Salvation is deliverance from the power and effects of sin. Now did you get that? Isn't that profound? Now, what is the power of sin? The power of sin is that which brings spiritual death. The power of sin is that which brings spiritual death. See, the power of sin was introduced to to humanity uh, through Adam and Eve. So when Adam and Eve believed the lie that they could be just like God, they could become equal with God, when they believed that lie, they gave power to, to sin, They rejected God and they went down the road of spiritual death. And from that time forward, spiritual death has been passed down to every generation of humanity because the power of sin took hold in humanity through Adam and Eve. And because of that, we have no power over sin. We cannot save ourselves. We have no capacity to bring about our own deliverance from the power of sin. We can't do that. Secondly, we're told that salvation brings, uh, frees us from the effects of sin. So firstly, it's from the power of sin. Secondly, from the effects of sin. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but as a society, we've tried to find ways to deal with the effects of sin. Now, one of the ways that we do that is that we define sin or harmful behaviors as a disease. So if we can take sin and make it something that is outside of ourselves, then we are not responsible for that sin. In fact, so much of things that we would say are actually sinful because we believe they come from inside of us, and society renames them as disease and then prescribes a medication for that disease. You notice how preoccupied we seem to be with trying to medicate our way out of our struggles. It seems to be the North American way. Secondly, we've tried to also simply redefine sin. We take things that are destructive, that create guilt, that create shame, and we recategorize them. What's a simple example? Well, a simple, bold example would be abortion. So we no longer say that abortion is taking the life of a child. We say that it is actually exercising a woman's right to choose. So therefore, it is a good thing. And the good outweighs the bad, which is taking the life of a child. Or in sexuality, we reject God's plan for sexual expression and we say, no, we're free. We are free from the repressive nature of God's plan. And we're told we should ignore any of the negative side effects on our relational, mental, emotional, spiritual, or physical world that may come from abusing sexuality or expressing it in ways that God never intended. Now, to a small degree, we can free ourselves or do the work to be free from the effects of sin. What do I mean by that? For instance, I can apologize for my poor behavior or inappropriate behavior or the hurt that I've caused someone else. If I'm an addict, I can go to rehab and try and deal with the effects of sin. But really, I'm only dealing with the symptoms of sin. I need to deal with the power of sin to truly deal with the effects of sin. I need to go to the source issue, not just the symptoms. Without victory, actually, over the power of sin, we won't recognize all the effects of sin. In fact, so often we think they're just normal behavior, and we write them off. We say things like, well, everyone does it. Everyone behaves this way. Don't don't worry about it. That's not sin. That's just human behavior. But that's not what God intended. And the coming king is the king of salvation. That means he will save his people, and he will save us, from the power and the effects of sin. Now, what does it mean to be saved? I think asking someone if they're saved is a strange question. Like generally, if someone would ask us, are you saved? We would say, well, saved from what? And typically, when we think of being saved, our minds go to the consequences and negative impact or hurtful of the hurtful and foolish things that we do. We think about things at that level. Those are the effects of sin, of sin. But the one thing everyone needs to be saved from is the power of sin, from spiritual death, which leads to eternal separation from God. So the king of salvation wants to save us at that level. As I said, everyone is born into this world spiritually dead, but physically alive. No one has the ability or power to make themselves spiritually alive. Only the king can do that. Your self-effort cannot do that. Your accomplishments cannot do that. Your charitable work cannot do it. There's nothing you can do to become spiritually alive. Why is that? It's simple. Because we're dead. We all come into this world spiritually dead. And if we don't deal with our deadness, we will spend eternity apart from God, apart from the goodness of God, apart from the people of God. And that's worse than anything that you or I can imagine or dream up. It's the worst thing that we can experience. The king of righteousness and salvation brings those two reality, his righteousness and his saving work together to give us new life. That's what he does. I love how Paul explains this in his book, uh, Colossians, written to the church in the city of Colossae. He says this in chapter 2, verse 13. You were dead because of your sins and because because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it on the cross. In this way, he disarmed spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Did you get that? Your deadness was dealt with by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The king of righteousness gave himself up for us and gave up his perfect righteousness for you and for me. The king of righteousness and salvation saved us from the source of sin and paid the price for the effects of sin on our lives. I love that mental picture of our sins being nailed to the cross with Jesus. It's such a powerful picture. I mean, think about each of your sins written on a piece of paper and nailed to the cross, taken care of gone, forgiven. What a beautiful and clear picture. Now, not only were our sins nailed to the cross, the texts tell us that the spiritual rulers and authorities, the devil and his demons, were defeated that day. What great news. Now, the reality is that the devil can harass us, the demons can harass us, but they have no power over Christ's followers unless we give it to them. Now, how do we give that power to Satan and his demons? By believing the lies that were f- that we're fed, that they try and say to us, speak into our minds, that we need to do something other than simply put our faith in Christ and receive his forgiveness to be saved. The lie is that we're supposed to add something, some self-effort to salvation, that Jesus is not enough, that the king of salvation is not enough, that the king of righteousness is not enough. Lies that tell us that we have to work for for salvation. Lies that tell us that if we worship or honor our ancestors, they will look after us because Jesus is not enough. Lies that tell us that we can believe other religions and be saved apart from Christ because somehow Christ's work is not enough. Lies that tell us that we will be reincarnated until we reach a state of perfection because Jesus is not enough. Lies that tell us that we can actually do something to make ourselves acceptable to God. We can't. You can't. Why? Because your badness is not the issue. Your deadness is the issue. You're not trying to add good works to life, to be accepted by God. The invitation is to become spiritually alive. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. That's what he did. And how did he accomplish this? How did the king of righteousness, the king of salvation accomplish this? Because he's also the king of humility. Verse 9 of Zechariah 9, the second half of the verse says, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, what does humility have to do with riding a donkey? Fair question. From the time of Solomon, the donkey was considered a lowly animal, but it was also considered a symbol of peace. A donkey was not used in war. That was never the point of a donkey. Conquering kings, when they came home from war and they came with a big procession, they wouldn't come home celebrating victory riding a donkey. They'd be riding a stallion or they might be riding a camel, but not a donkey There are animals that symbolize power, authority, pride, victory. But Zechariah says that the coming king does not arrive that way. Other nations would laugh at the thought of a king on a donkey. What a joke. How embarrassing, how humiliating. Think about the president of the United States getting rid of his limousines and showing up in a Prius to all of his meetings. That would be humble, but that would not be a sign of power. So how does the humble king rule? What does his humility look like as a king? Reflect for a moment on how most kings in the past and more recently politicians operate. What kind of speeches do they make? Typically it goes something like this. All the problems that we are now facing as a country, well, we inherited those from the previous administration. This was all their fault. But our administration, my administration, has the proper and the best solutions to those problems. So if you want to experience the benefit of these perfect solutions that we have, you need to keep me and my government in power. Right? It's anything but humility. It's blaming everything on the past and trying to take credit for anything good that would happen in the present or the future. But how do humble kings rule? Humble kings do not rule for their own benefit. Hum, humble kings do not rule to try and keep themselves in office. Humble kings sacrifice for the benefit of the people. They do not claim greatness. They point to the one who is great. They serve for the benefit of their subjects. Listen to how the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, describes humility. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6-8, to eight, he writes, Though he, Jesus, was God, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience and died a criminal's death on a cross. The coming king humbled himself to make his new kingdom possible. He served in humility for our benefit, for your benefit for my benefit, for the benefit of all of humanity. The coming king will be righteous. He will bring salvation and he will rule with humility. So what will his kingdom be like? The coming kingdom will be a kingdom where we can live with confidence, with joy and with hope. Zechariah 9 verse 10 tells us what it will be like. He says, I, meaning Jesus, will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations, and he shall rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So what is this symbolism that is, uh, Zechariah points to? What does it mean? Well, first of all, it will be a peaceful kingdom. When he prophesied, the king enters, when the king enters Jerusalem, he will cut off the war chariot, the horse, and the battle bow from his people. What he's saying is that all the apparatus of war will disappear from the kingdom. The new kingdom will be established without physical force. It will be established in a way that is completely countercultural. to how every kingdom gets established, then or now. Jesus established his, his peaceful kingdom through a revolution of sacrifice, the sacrifice of his own life. The church that Jesus started has always spread through peace, through humility, and through self-sacrifice. Whenever the church has lost sight of its king and his character, it has actually become an ugly caricature of religion, operating just like all human kings operate, selflessly and destructively. But Jesus the king rules with peace. Secondly, he tells us it will be a united kingdom. Zechariah tells us that the people of God are designated as Ephraim and Jerusalem. What does that mean? He is telling us that the citizens of the former northern kingdom who were cast off by God because of their rejection of him and the citizens of the southern kingdom will be joined together in a new messianic kingdom envisioned here, prophesied here. That new kingdom is not an ethnic kingdom. It's not a national state. It's not a physical revolution. The new kingdom is the kingdom of God initiated by the person and work of Jesus through his death and resurrection in the church, while separating Jew and Gentile, will be broken down, as Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, where he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This new kingdom is open to all who put their faith in the new king, in Jesus. Do you catch that? This new kingdom is open to all who put their faith in the new king, in Jesus. And thirdly, the kingdom will be a universal kingdom the Messiah, Jesus, will speak peace to the nations. His kingdom will not be limited to Jews. It will not be limited to the historic promised land that uh, was promised to Abraham. It will extend to all nations. And the advancement of this kingdom will be through the proclamation of peace by the ambassadors of the king, the followers of Jesus who proclaim peace with God, peace within, and peace with others. This kingdom will be ethnically and geographically diverse. The second half of Zechariah 9 verse 10 says, his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now the river that is being talked about in this text is the Euphrates, the most remote eastern boundary of the promised land. The sea is likely the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. And the text tells us that the messianic kingdom will incorporate all of the old territory of the promised land and much more. It will extend to the ends of the earth. See, because the king brings his kingdom. That's the beauty of what he does. And this verse, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, is the prophetic word, the word spoken into the future that was fulfilled by Jesus in the book of Matthew chapter 21. And in the first five verses of Matthew 21, we see how this happens, where it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus was offering himself to the people, to the Jews from all over the country who had come together to celebrate the Passover. He was offering himself as the anointed one of God. Jesus, the coming king, was not looking for a physical throne to sit on. His kingship is a kingship of the heart. He came humbly riding a donkey. He came in peace. He didn't come to conquer the Romans. He came to establish his kingdom. He showed that he came not to destroy love, not to condemn, but to help, not in the might of arms, but rather in the strength of love. That's how Jesus came. And he came to establish his new kingdom, a righteous kingdom, a peaceable kingdom, A universal kingdom, a kingdom that defeats the power of sin and the effects of sin, a kingdom that brings life to its citizens. If you are a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, you can live with confidence, with hope, and with joy. You catch that? If you are a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, you can live with confidence and hope with joy. No matter what you fear or wonder or question about the future, no matter what unknown you face, because Jesus is king and his kingdom is secure. See, God's promises are true just like Zechariah's word came true. And Palm Sunday is the announcement of that coming kingdom, of Jesus' kingdom. It's the announcement that Jesus defeated the power of sin and the effects of sin. Now, if you have not put your trust in Jesus, I invite you to do that today. Trade your idea of what you want Jesus to do for you and embrace what he has done for you that you cannot do for yourself. Trade your rule in your life for his rule in your life. The king is here. Jesus is here inviting you to celebrate with him by giving your life to him. Now, if you know Jesus, if you are a citizen of his kingdom, celebrate the king and his kingdom. Declare his peace to everyone in your world. Live into the future with confidence and with joy and with hope. Because even though you do not know what will happen tomorrow, you do know who the king is and that his kingdom will prevail. As we close, I just want to pray with you. So if you're in that first category, if you've never entered into Jesus' kingdom, simply pray this simple prayer with me. Jesus, I recognize you as king. I recognize that you are the righteous king, the king who brings salvation, the king who rules in humility, the king who has defeated the power and effects of sin. And so I give my life to you. Please come and rule in my life. Forgive me of my sins and give me new life in you. Give me spiritual life to replace the deadness in me. Thank you for your saving work. Thank you for giving me citizenship in your kingdom. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and guide me every day. And if you are a citizen of the King, if you belong to his kingdom, but you struggled with the future, you've struggled with the unknown, you've struggled with anxiety, with the uncertainty of the world we live in, I want to pray for you as well as we close this morning. Father, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus. And I thank you for each of us who have responded to his work, to his righteousness, to his saving work, to his humility, and the new kingdom that he initiated through his death and resurrection. And so, Father, I pray for each person who knows you but is struggling, that they can take those fears, they can take those concerns, and give them to you today. To reject the lies of the enemy who says you have to do more, you have to know more, you have to be more, that there are other ways to find peace outside of Jesus. We just reject those lies today and we say, Jesus, you are my king. I follow you. Fill me with your truth. Remind me of the truth of the reality of your kingdom that you rule, that you are the king of righteousness, the king of salvation, that you rule with peace and you desire to give each one of your citizens peace. Come and fill us with your spirit. And Father, I pray that as your spirit fills us, that we would be your ambassadors, the ambassadors of this kingdom to share that good news with each person that you lead us to. So we celebrate that great work that was initiated on the Passover as Jesus rode into the city to fulfill prophecy and initiate the steps towards the cross, which would bring ultimate victory and ultimate freedom for all who put their faith in him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In a minute, we'll have some questions for you to reflect on uh, regarding today's message and regarding Jesus' kingdom and your experience in it.